G'day, everyone. How you doing? Uh, welcome to uh, Lubrication Experts. Uh, today, I've got a very, very special episode. We're going to be talking with uh, Tom Schiff, um, formerly of Mobile, now out on his own with uh, Schiff Asset Management. So um, encourage you, if you've got any questions or anything like that at the end of this, um, you know, to reach out, reach out to Tom. Um, he has a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of experience to be able to share with us. You know, prior to mobile, he was also working in the industry, in the field as well, has a lot of um, you know, actual uh, real-world <laughs> lubrication experience as well as asset management experience. So um, don't want to confine it just to, to lubricants. Obviously, that is the focus of this, uh, this channel. And today, what we're going to be talking about is you know, world-class asset management or world-class maintenance um, and exactly you know, what, did it, what, what does it take to become uh, you know, a world-leading organization when it comes to uh, maintenance, reliability, and asset management? And um, probably that's how, how we'll kick it off, really. Um, so just that we can all sit, be on the same page and, and set a bit of a, a north star. You know, when we talk about world-class maintenance, um, you know, what, what do you actually mean by that? What, what does that look like to you? Yeah. Well, first, Rick, uh, thanks for having me on. It's a it's a pleasure. Hopefully, I can help help others, uh, you know, out there with, uh, you know, my experience, which means I guess I'm kind of old now. But uh, yeah, I <laughs> no, really appreciate it. Um, it, it is. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said asset management and, and first just maintenance management. A lot of people use the terms a, a bit in a, you know interchangeably, but I, I like to think in terms of asset management as as I think this is more inclusive. To the success of a of a world class enterprise that involves because a lot of people think of maintenance as just the guys turning the wrench uh, out in the field, but it does involve if you're really going to maintain you know and, and run your assets well, it takes maintenance, operations, engineering, procurement, the she department, HR, you name it, <laughs> working together to make that happen. So asset management to me makes it feel it's more of the the family of that that impacts the. The actual physical assets and and the people assets is as well to make make a world class uh, operation. But boy, it, you know, to, to and I'll try and keep it somewhat brief, uh, my my best. But my picture would include you know several aspects, and I I think that it always starts with leadership. It has got to be you know extremely strong from top down. They got to have they got to set the have clarity and commitment to what the organization's goals are. What's the core, their core values? What are their beliefs? What are their approaches to that? Um, and, and have a, an extreme focus on customers, both internal customers and external. Uh, I think, you know, a commitment to operational excellence is absolutely part of those core values. It, you know, if you don't have that, I, I think you're going to someone's going to struggle. Uh, but you always have to put safety, the environment product integrity, uh, you know, ethics, those have to be first in, in every case before you even start. Um, I, th I think as you move away kind of from the overarching, uh, you know, goal strategy, you have to get alignment between all the functions, like we talked about operations, engineering, maintenance, procurement, uh, on, on what those goals are and, and have a general, uh, you know, interest approach to, to the success and that everyone has an understanding of each other's goals, you know, the overarching company goals and what how each group has to contribute and what are those challenges that they all have and to have empathy for all of them. Meaning that, you know, a lot of times people will point fingers at different uh, parts of an operation, but you have to have empathy to, 
to start feeling, hey, I, I understand the challenges you have and work together to help each other over overcome those. And there are many times where the way you operate your equipment can absolutely impact how much maintenance is going to be done and how well you do your maintenance is absolutely going to impact the way that you operate it. So that's just one example, but they're absolutely tied and you have to understand the, the challenges and work together to make that uh, optimal. Um, I think you, you, you got to have, you know, to be world-class, I think you have to have a disciplined framework. You can't just, you know, there's got to be a roadmap. There's got to be some, you know, understanding of, you know, how do you break it down? What are the elements of asset management? What, what, how do you define each of those and how do you work towards each of those? And, and that, that you will go out there and externally, internally and externally benchmark or evaluate that framework and how are you meeting it versus maybe what others in your industry class or maybe other industry classes are, are doing. I, I think a really good example of that, or a place to start is with uh, Terrence O'Hanlon and Uptime Element Framework. I, I see it as a very effective framework. It does a really good job outlining some of the key elements to that. I'm, I'm sure there are others out there. I just, they, they've done a great job, I think, defining uh, the, the key elements of that framework and, and how to, to work towards that. Um, you know, as you, as you, as you have a framework, uh, I think an organization that creates and, you know, continually improves is if you have that mindset and you build that culture and you reward people by that uh, across the entire organization, then, then I think you're going to get the, the right behaviors in the organization. And the only way that's going to happen is being driven by leadership. There's that connection between leadership behaviors and what actions people take and what that culture then becomes. But those are all very, very important. But the underlying is you got to You can't say, hey, world, if you say you're world class and in a way you're not world class because you never you, it's something that it's very hard to, to ever say you, you're at the finish line. You've always got to continuously improve. Mm -hmm. uh, to do that, I, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> you have to you have to understand risk. And it's not to be risk adverse. You actually have to be a risk expert. You got to learn how to take the right risks and, and how to manage risks, um, how to prioritize to, to do that and deploying your resources, prioritizing those resources, your investments. Um, how do you design your equipment, uh, your processes that you have, how you install it, how you maintain it? Uh, what is your the people that have to do the work, both operations and and maintenance in that strategy? But but you have to do that around understanding what what are the risks that you have in your operation and for the different assets. Not everything's created equal, and you can't attack everything at once. But having a methodical way of understanding that and then making good decisions on those risks is critical. Uh, I see a lot of people saying, "Hey, we got to move completely to." preventive maintenance or predictive maintenance and or or proactive and and you know people probably get in fistfights saying hey what's what's the right one and i i think it's it's a never ending battle it's, but the answer is yes you actually have to have a combination of breakdown maintenance preventative predictive or condition monitoring and proactive maintenance uh, to to be world class which means you understand how to apply each of those strategies in your overarching strategy to get your optimal Hey, how do you get the most production on quality for the lowest cost, uh, you know, and do that on a consistent basis uh, and make people happy doing it? That That's, you know, but it, it comes to balancing that and that balance has to come from the risk.
uh, I think another important thing is being committed to using root cause analysis and not to be afraid to look in the mirror for systemic issues or, or opportunities. Uh, I think if people will embrace, I've been to make people embrace root cause analysis to really get to the underlying reasons, you'll be successful. And I think if you get a culture of that, great. I've walked in to, you know, offices where everyone knew the answer you know, to why a piece of equipment failed and they hadn't even looked at the, I call it the dead body. No one even looked at the dead body yet, you know, but they knew the answer. I'm like, wait a minute, you don't need, even looked at the evidence or you haven't talked to anyone or, you know, you got to break those paradigms and really be committed to dig in and, and understand, uh, you know, you got to handle the truth. And sometimes it's uncomfortable, but if you get an organization that will embrace that, uh, you know, I think, I think they'll be successful. Uh, I think you got to have processes. Uh, I think uh, you, you've got to make sure that you got they're fit for purpose uh, to, to have the right processes in place. Uh, you have to be flexible to change them as you, you know, understand them. But just doing stuff off the back of your hand or being told by someone who repla you replaced and then on, not a good way. I think having robust processes of doing things sets standards and, and helps helps people do jobs the right way which kind of then fits into kind of fit for, for purpose, precision maintenance or uh, asset management. You know, when you look at design, alignment, balance, looking at putting in foundations, doing belt tension, uh, th those kind of things, those are really important uh, and, and doing the right precision, but it's gotta be based on risk. You're not gonna do precision, you're not gonna do, you, you know, the same alignment standards for something running 300 RPM as you are for something running 7,200 RPM. Uh, you know, that, and, and especially if one is producing, not producing a lot and has a spare uh, and the other one's critical to operation. So you have to figure out when to apply each of those, but but having those precision techniques in place are, are critical. Um, I always like this, you know, work the plan, you know, plan the work, work the plan, but be flexible, yeah, you know, but do what you say you're going to do. If you start deviating from that, from a leadership perspective, I think people start, you know, doubting your your commitment to doing that. Uh, I, I think what's really important too is investment in innovation and being willing to make mistakes. But you always have to be looking at what other people are doing, what best practices are out there. They're not all going to work. Uh, you, you certainly don't want to punish people for coming up with with ideas. And uh, you know, you, people have some times, you know, ways of doing that, like a, a idea box, whatever like that. But I, I think it's more than that. I think it's, it's really people waking up in the morning saying, Hey, how can I make the jobs better? How, how can I re-engineer this? How do I make it better and reward people for, for making mistakes as well as for getting it, getting it right, but have a really learning atmosphere in, in place. Um, and, and, you know, again, I keep on talking about people rewards and behaviors and stuff. Uh, so it really means to be successful at people are your greatest asset. And you got to make sure people have the right tools, process, that that you've designed things on how they do their work properly, that they're trained well, and that they have the right rewards that they, and you know, no matter what job you have in a facility, that at the end of the day, you feel like you're, you're, you're worthwhile and you're, you know, you're getting rewarded and different people are rewarded in different ways or, or they see it in different ways. But understanding the people side of it is, is critical and making sure that everything's in place to make it a rewarding experience for people is, is absolutely paramount. Uh, I always like to do things based on a 
practical, not just a theoretical. I mean, a lot of people will write books and give you a, a binder, you know, uh, a meter wide saying here, you know, or thick, you know, here's all the things you need to do, but make sure, you know, you, things are, are practical, you know, that there are practical solutions out there and that people aren't setting from a desk, just coming up with nice ideas, but, you know, working with people that know, you know, the people that actually do the work and designing things to, to make them practical. Uh, I, I guess the last thing I'd say is, you know, we, we talk about people again and leadership and, it's, it's about having the right team members in place uh, from, from the mechanics to, you know, to uh, electricians, to the supervisors, to planners, to, you know, the, the management. Uh, you got to have the right people in place that and, and operations that, that all believe in the things I just covered, you know, and that everyone's going, going in the same direction and that it can withstand people changes and because people will change. And a lot of times if, if you've got one champion and all of a sudden that person changes and the whole thing falls apart, that, then you're, you, you're not going to be world-class. What gives me personal satisfaction is when I can go back to a facility that I worked at 20 years ago, and they're still doing some of the same processes that, you know, I could see my footprint. It, it wasn't just because of me, it was the, everyone doing it together. But when you see what you worked on together, still in place, now you feel you, you know, that to me is rewarding and it says, hey, I think you've moved the, the needle in the right direction. So get all that done. I think you're world class. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that that's so interesting. I, I think, um, you know, obviously there's, there's so much in that answer, but uh, I think probably my takeaway, if anything, uh, was, you know, placing not, not necessarily, maybe it's equal importance on, what people might term like the soft skills uh, part of the job. You know, I think as engineers, sometimes we get buried so much in the technicalities of writing the correct procedure and doing the you know risk matrix and getting the, getting the, like you said, the precision, precision maintenance, you know, absolutely dead on. Um, and what sometimes can fall by the wayside is the the people, the culture that kind of enables that. So for me that, you know, that I think is a, not that either is more important, but to to put more of an emphasis on that, you know, quote unquote, uh, soft skill part of of asset management, and and like you said, you know, starting with leadership and, and ensuring that there's a there is there is a whole culture around um, making sure that everyone's aligned in the right direction, and part of that, which I, I thought was a really interesting part of your answer, was um, that idea of treating uh, not only external parties but also internal parties as if they're your customer, which, you know, people, I think they hear that and they they very much think of like a sales type role, like a sales focus. You're always told to put the customer's needs first. But I think that's a, that's a great way of, you know, uh, empathizing with people, uh, basically anyone who's affected by your work, right? If you think of them as being a customer, what would they want out of, out of my job? That, that's a, that's a really, uh, that's a really great way of kind of framing uh, that, that way of thinking. I really like that. So, so now that we've got that sort of um, north star, right? Like that's 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 our ideal picture of of what Arm One looks like. Um, what's the reality on the ground that you see? Like in in your experience, you know, you you've been to to plenty of sites. How how close or how far are a lot of businesses from that that sort of idealized picture of world class maintenance? And 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 maybe even does it divide up by you know, different sectors or, or maybe different countries. 
you know, realizing that there's not there's not a, a correct answer here, but you know, often often different sectors, for example, have different skill levels or they're funded in a different way, and that can affect you know their their outlook as well. Um, but yeah, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great great question, and I, I also think I you have to answer that question over a time span. Yeah, true. You know, yeah. one company that was great doesn't mean they're always great. Yeah. Uh, you know, but but uh, now I, I, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to go all over the world. I've been to I don't want to say thousands, but hundreds of different, uh, you know, different industries. All you name it. If it moved, I, I think I've seen it, <laughs> which is great. And, and I've just been to lots and lots of different company uh, countries and companies. Um, you know, and I've seen a wide spectrum of performance, you know, in, in, in just about every industry in each country, you see a spectrum uh, out there. And it's, you know, I, I, I think that spectrum will always be out there because people are different parts of their life cycle. And just because, like I said before, just because you're great at one part of your life cycle, uh, it is, again, people change and, you know, finances change and companies change. It's a never ending battle. But I do typically see in certain industries, such as pharmaceuticals, petrochemical, aviation, nuclear, mm. uh, you, you know, the ones that really have an impact on society, you know, from safety, environmental or financial have high risk. Yeah, those you see have a, a pretty good lifespan on an ongoing basis of world class that they really are investing uh, to be the best that they can when they're in hyper competitive, you know, uh, industries. Uh, but they also have a commitment because they won't be in business very long if they do if they have a mistake. So th those type of companies I see are, are setting the pace. But that doesn't necessarily mean that what they do is necessarily the best for every company. It's mm -hmm. got to be fit for purpose and the risk that you're you're managing. But they, you know, th those are some really good ones. I would have said, you know, at one time some countries definitely outperform others. Uh, but I think because of technology, you know, how, how close we've all become around the world, the fact that you're in Australia, I'm in the U.S. right now, we're talking not like this, uh, you know, 20 years ago, this wouldn't even think of it. And we're able to share and learn. I, I, I've seen many places catch up and been mm -hmm. very impressed with wh whether that's in Latin America, Europe, Asia, you know, in the, Amer you know, in the Americas, it, it's, you know, just it's it, it, it's in, it's great to see that it's really the bar has been risen. I, I do see a lot of opportunity more for the small medium enterprises out there, and it's not because they don't have smart people, and, and some of them do have great great asset management programs. But just because of resources and, and kind of sophistication, I think that there are a lot of that, that they have probably more quick gains to to you know at hand. Uh, that they could take advantage, you know, as long as it's fit for their purpose, that they could take advantage of. And it's, it's just connecting them to the right expertise. And, and, you know, I think once they get the commitment from a leadership and behavior, just taking a few techniques and tools, it doesn't have to be, you know, this huge, you know, beast of some of these larger companies, but they can make some really, really quick, uh, you know, quick gains. Uh, Guess the final one. I think I kind of started off with this is I think one successful to world class is never saying that you that you are a world class. You got to recognize progress, but I I think it's a dangerous game to declare absolute victory in this in this. I, if you are, I I don't think you'll be there very long. Someone you're going to get knocked off the hill. Yeah, that's 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 interesting, and and you know I think 
basically what you've outlined there that tracks broadly with 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 what I see. Um, I think that the comment about the small to medium enterprises having um, both maybe like the potential um, for you know very very quick gains, um, but also the capacity as well. Um, so you know, like just my experience working with a few clients, that that sort of medium sized enterprise is almost like the sweet spot where they have they have enough resourcing that they can you know put things together pretty quickly, uh, but they also don't have the burden of so much you know red tape and and uh, you know processes and different risk assessments that they got to do. You know the the really really large companies sometimes it, they're so slow to change. Um, that yeah, that medium-sized enterprise seems to be able to um, yeah have the resourcing, but also be nimble enough to be able to do it. And then, like you said, yeah. once you get into sort of like that small business and small-scale manufacturing, it's really hard for them. You know, when you've only got so many resources to to throw at a problem. And uh, I think that sort of ties a little bit back to what you discussed in in sort of my first question, which was, you know, you've got to have the capacity for people to be replaced. Um, you know, uh, that that can be hard when you only have uh, a maintenance and asset management team of like three people, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone becomes essential to the enterprise. So that is obviously just a, a risk of being a small business. But yeah, um, now maybe one one thing I think would be interesting to discuss is what are some of the, the, the larger barriers that you see? So we've already talked about what is world-class asset, ma- um, asset management, and then we've talked a little bit about the current state of most of those sectors. So if we want to get from where we are to the idealized state, what do you see as some of being some of those biggest barriers um, to improvement? Right. So um, you know, just to throw some ideas, like is it is it lack of knowledge and lack of training? Is it uh, that we don't have the right KPIs set up? Um, is it because we find it difficult to measure against those KPIs? Like what, what do you see as being some of those problems? Yeah, I'm I'm gonna joke a little bit to start out with <laughs> if it weren't for all the if it weren't for all the people that everything would work great i joke there because I, I think working with people is the best part of it all you know is that that's what makes coming to work fun yeah we uh, used to and, we used to also it, say that uh when when i was in the sales function as well if only we didn't have customers selling would be <laughs> yeah, right, yeah yeah but but, but i mean it's the biggest challenge is, is the human factor and, and that, you know, it'd be great, you know, if everything just works from a manual, uh, great, but there are people out there and people make mistakes and people have egos, people have their own desires and goals. And, you know, so it is, it isn't that the, the human element is, is, you know, it's the biggest barrier, but it's also the greatest opportunity and the most rewarding. And I, I think the number one area out of that is, you know, barrier is lack of leadership or commitment to excellence. Uh, you know, it just takes one, one oopsie, one mistake, saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, not leading uh, correctly. And, and it shoots everything down the drain. You know, it just people lose, they don't, they won't, they lose their faith. Um, everyone's got to have that, you know, it's, it's, you know, people really have to walk the talk and they have to believe in what they have to really believe in what they say and do. Um, they they have to be committed to it. That you can't wake up one morning and say, "Hey, uh, no, we're going back the old way." You know, whether that's just reliability or safety or any of these, it's it's you know absolutely critical. You know, there is due to lack of knowledge, uh, but but again, that's more related to you know if you if you have the right leadership in place, 
in the framework, the rest will come. Um, but but it is critical because as people change, that lack of knowledge becomes even greater, and that culture becomes even greater. So it's it's the the other part of leadership and culture is just getting everyone aligned. Uh, you imagine, you know, we both worked for ExxonMobil. You know, that's a very large organization. Uh, just getting everyone aligned to say yes, this is what you know success looks like and how we want it becomes very challenging. Uh, but but even in a smaller organization, it, it can still be very challenging. And, and you got to get operations maintenance. You got to get the engineering to design it correctly in the first place, or or you know that they put in a piece of equipment that they didn't you know design how to get the piece of equipment out there if you have to repair it. You know, they didn't put, put anything for a crane overhead or anything like that. So you just, everyone's got to, you know, have empathy for each other. They have to understand it and they have to be aligned as an organization. Um, and, and you do have to measure, uh, you know, you, you do have to have good KPIs, both success and failures. It's, it's critical to drive the right behaviors, to learn where to invest, uh, you know, to help people learn themselves. But, but the KPIs themselves, you know, I, one is I, I'd like to keep as few as possible, as simple as possible, that really drive the right behavior. But just having the KPIs by themselves doesn't win the battles or the war. But it's alignment and commitment to what they're trying to achieve, what, what those metrics are trying to achieve and how to achieve them is, is more critical. It, then, then the KPIs, it all connects to each other, uh, you know, to, to make it all make sense, make sense and drive those right behaviors. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting. So I think it, like one of the overarching themes that I'm sensing is, yeah, a lot of it does come back to that, that leadership and, and, and direction. Uh, not that everything is top down, but, but it's more about sort of establishing that culture to make sure that everyone's, um, like you said, aligned in the right direction. I think that's, uh, it's a really good, it's a really good takeaway from this. Um, maybe to pivot just a little bit, um, one of the things that we talked about initially with what does world-class maintenance look like is this idea that we will always want to be tying it to um, maybe we want to call it like a license to operate almost, you know, your environmental mm -hmm. concerns and, and obviously productivity comes out of that as well. Um, but the one sort of like the big elephant in the room is, is safety, right? Um, safety performance as well. So is there any way to, let's say, draw a, a direct link between our world-class asset management or our world-class maintenance um, and the safety performance in the field? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be biased. Uh, I, in my life, whether I worked when I was working in a paper mill or when I worked for ExxonMobil for the years, uh, just about in every uh, job I had, I, I was a, a safety champion. I, you know, worked myself or created it or, had the opportunity given to me to not be in the safety department, but to be a, a the champion for the organization, you know, around keeping people safe. And, you know, it, there's a massive connection between world-class asset management and, and safety. Uh, I, we, by the way, we could have our own podcast probably just on that by itself, but I'll, 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 well, I'll try not will. pontificate. Yeah. But, but I, I have a great passion about it. I really, I, I love, I love the subject. I love, you know, cause it is about, about people uh, and it is about engineering. Uh, but, but I think start off with is just as we talked about before leadership and commitment, well, there's gotta be commitment with safety just as there are around asset management. And that's, 
you know, nobody gets hurt. Having a standard where it's not, you know, just the, you know, uh, number of hours without a safety incident or whatever. I mean, bottom line, it's, it's got to be as, as clear cut is no one's going to come to this job and, and, and get hurt. That's, that's the yard mark. Um, I, I do know is the connection, you know, an old friend of mine, he worked at ExxonMobil, and, and I think he heard this from someone else, but he said, hey, told me, and it stuck with me forever. He goes, if you have a safe operation, I can't, I can't guarantee you you're going to have successful business. But what I can guarantee to you, you will fail if you don't have a safe operation. All right, so just because you're safe doesn't mean you're going to make lots of money. Um, but I can guarantee you if you're not safe, you'll never make money. Uh, and you won't be world class in asset management. So that that always stuck there to me. So it, it just shows how foundational it is to your to your you know your asset management program. Um, the the tie you know it's between the two they're absolutely tied because when you design and install to the strategies that you're deploying to you know maintain them, you're setting yourself up for success or failure. You, you know if you make things hard to you know if you have to crawl around equipment to, to inspect it, or if you have to replace something on a piece of equipment, you're putting yourself in harm's way. If you don't have the right guarding in place, if you don't, if you don't even have the right behavior driving things in place, it, safety becomes pretty tough. It, it's it's critical not just to meet the regs, the regulations, but have a focus on eliminating loss. About that, nobody getting hurt, and you have to, you know, we we need our our engineers, and and again, that could be a mechanic, that can be an electrician, that can be a maintenance engineer, could be a reliability engineer. Engineer means whoever's out there figuring out how to do work. You got to have the right design, the right installation processes, tools, you know, and, and how you're going to repair it. And that's going to be along the whole PF, you know, curve. You know, the whole life cycle. I've seen recently. I like how they've expanded the PF curve from hey it's not just when you detect a problem to when it fails but it's way upstream of that it's it's the original designs and, and having that all in place to make sure you're maximizing it and you have to you have to be committed you know around this around the human performance factor that's something within exxon mobile we really dove into in the last few years which is really you know when you start looking at behavior and behavioral tools it's around designing things realizing that you have humans not robots at work and, and that, you, that people will make mistakes at all levels of the organization and that you have to understand that, that human performance factor when you design and, and maintain things to set people up for success. So, so understanding that human factors is, is, is critical. Uh, I, I see the other thing, just like we were talking about rewarding people for the job they're doing, you, you have to reward safe behavior. You have to make sure you have the right metrics and, and, you know, evaluations in place, they've got to include safety. And you, and you really should, you shouldn't, this is my personal thing, you shouldn't be rewarding people for not getting hurt. You should be rewarding for the behaviors that allows them not to get hurt. So just re relying on a number, hey, no one got hurt. Okay, you know, people do a lot of strange things to get that, that reward. You really want to focus, if you do the focus on the behaviors and the actions people and reward that, you'll find that you'll get to the other end of the uh, equation. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I think it's important when you're measuring it, it's a really good thing to, I think to measure is how are you minimizing the human machine interface and in, in hours of risk? 
Um, I, I think that's critical. I think as people are doing their work and understanding, hey, if I do this a different way, uh, use a different process, different tools, different lubricant, hey, I can I can reduce the amount of time a human and a machine have to interface with each other. If I can reduce that, then I'm mitigating the risks down to an acceptable or more acceptable level to stay to stay safe. Um, obviously, you know, if you're if you're in a uh, and I went there, I've been 24 hour day in a paper mill, which to me is not safe. If you're sitting there for 24 hours on a breakdown trying to get a machine back going, versus having a well planned out, you know, you minimize the time you have with that machine. Everything's planned out. So many things get avoided. So so really understanding that and managing those risks are, are critical. Um, I, I hope that makes sense. I, I, I did share some some graphs. Uh, I, I think you're going to pull them up, but I, I, I could just talk through some of the graphs just briefly. I, I think they're important. It's from a, a, a person I met, a lot of respect for, uh, a guy named Ron Moore, uh, and he had some great correlations. Uh, he's from a, the RM group, and he was good with allowing me to uh, use some of these. In fact, I think some of these graphs may have been ExxonMobil as, as a case history, but they don't have the name on there. But it shows a correlation between the way you run your equipment and injury rate. And the first the first graph is, is showing you um, the injury rate uh, as a percentage of a base on uh, the uh, y-axis on the left side. And then on the right side, you've got your overall uh, equipment effectiveness or, or asset utilization, again, as a percentage of base over time. And you can see the, the regression calculation is 0.64, which is, you, you know, not a home run, but it's pretty good. I mean, it's, you know, to me, when you get over 0.5, you're pretty good correlation, but you can look at the graphs themselves. You can look at the lines, the yellow line is that injury rate and the, the uh, bluish line or what light blue line is the OEE line and and you can see as runs you know as the oes up the injury rates down and vice versa so it, a, a pretty pretty good correlation there uh another another graph uh you know below that one shows just if you if you look at the type of work orders that are being done and, and number of injuries in the facility based on the number of those work orders you see the more corrective or reactive work orders you do in a year the the higher the injury rate pretty pretty good correlation uh between between those for that facility and, and the last one is now looking at uh really the the opposite which is uh you're doing more pm work you're doing more condition-based monitoring you can see the injury rate going down there's a great correlation if, if you look at the regression 0.9 is pretty darn good uh, you could argue, hey, is 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 this extensive enough of of an investigation, et cetera? But pretty pretty good correlation uh, between between the two. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't I don't think I've ever seen it sort of expressed in that way. You know, we always hear about the link that it makes sense that you know if you have to interact with equipment less, then it stands to reason that there are fewer opportunities to be injured. Um, I don't think I've ever actually seen the data presented in that way so clearly. So. Um, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting uh, data point that directly, if you like, links um, all the the different activities that we're doing on site with uh, with site safety. Um, for me, that's that, that's a really important takeaway from from this discussion because I don't think I've ever seen it that clearly. 
to me, it tells you the more you do based on condition monitoring and plan basis, your injury rate's going to be going down if, or, you know, you're, you're going to be better. You yeah. know, the, the, uh, you're going to have higher injury rates if everything's breakdown, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it, it, it makes, it does correlate really well. Yeah. And that, I mean, it makes total sense too, right? Like if you have unplanned work and like you said, if you, if you're doing reactive work, you had less opportunity to plan it out. You're in a bigger rush trying to get the plant, you know, up and running because you're losing productivity. You're on the clock. It makes sense that you're going to make more mistakes and, and, and people are going to get hurt. So I think that, uh, you know, that, that tracks with how you could logic it out, but, but also it makes a lot of, um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So maybe if, if we can um, talk about, you know, we've talked a little bit about where people are, where people would like to get to. Um, now we've kind of established that there's a desire to get there, not only because it's going to improve your plant productivity, but also the safety of your workers as well. So if we can maybe get into some just general practical tips for, you know, what do you see as being very, very common low-hanging fruit on, on a lot of the sites that you go to and how would you how would you go about addressing some of those? Yeah, my, my quick read, my, the temptation is always to go at technology, you know, or some sort of new tool or some approach, which, which I, I, I'm going to list some, you know, but you got to take a step before that. I, you got to start, I think, uh, you, you know, to get to the low hanging fruit, if you just start, you, you if you imp, implement some of the things I'm going to tell you, you're going to get some low, you're going to get some wind, you get some low hanging fruit, but what you want to sustain it, you want to build on it, you want to get better and better and get fit for purpose uh, to, to be world-class. So I, to really do it right, the best step is first making sure you're you're setting up a, an asset management framework. Use that as a start. It doesn't have to be overly complicated, but you got something to start. What is your roadmap? What are the elements of your program? Uh, who needs to be involved? And, and start evaluating your enterprise against that. Um, and, and that does get back to the, call it the softer side, but that means you've got to start assessing, well, what do the operations people think of maintenance? What do the maintenance people think of operation? What is engineering? Are, does anyone think of them at all? Or, you know, I, you know, do, what are people's beliefs and behaviors across the organization? You know, not just top down, but, you know, from everyone has got to be in, included into that, in that maybe, evaluation. I maybe just want to jump in there as well, because, you know, specifically just to talk about lubrication. I mean, that, like you said, the the opinion of what is it that the lube techs do and, and what value do they add to the organization? That to me is like the the biggest misnomer that I see in a lot of sites is, oh, you know, either all lubes are the same, right? Or they're all interchangeable or only the viscosity grade matters or... You know, or, or this is not uh, these are not precision engineered products. I don't have to treat it like a bearing or anything like that. I can you know pour whatever in, and like you said, it's that it's that mindset, right? Of the or, or the understanding of what is people's opinion of that practice. Um, yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to jump in there because obviously no, the lubricants, it's, it's just it's so important. Absolutely. When I worked at a paper mill, the lubric the guy the lube technicians were the lowest paid folks in the organization or one of the lowest and and they were not looked at and the, the job of lubrication wasn't seen as very tough and um you know when people opened their eyes and started really and you start putting process and how important it is and the fact that these folks are your eyes and ears of of the facility uh, and you start rewarding them and people understand that uh that then you elevate that that position and, and you get i think you get 
you know, people really satisfied with the work that they're doing. And you get folks to understand how important the lifeblood, literally the lifeblood of, of machinery is. So it's, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, but other other low hanging, you know, talking about low hanging fruit, I guess go back is I, I would be careful just again, not throwing a bunch of technology or activity without some sort of framework. It's important to have alignment from top management as well as key influencers. And those key influencers are, are the people on the ground floor, the people doing the work. You, you have to do a cross there to get alignment that, hey, we are, we're not going to conquer the world at once, but we got to tell people, hey, this is what we're doing, why we're doing it, why it's better for them, what's in it for them, and get start building success to, to, to get people, you know, behind the, the work. Uh, I, I would start, I mean, this is going to sound like common sense or like, well, I can't, you know, doesn't take much thought, but start working on the highest impact area that requires the least amount of work. Uh, you know, start getting some sort of Pareto chart out there and start saying, hey, what what are the things? And there are so many solutions out there that really don't take a lot of money or effort. And you're like, I was embarrassed, actually, in some of the techniques, and I'll mention some down there, simplest techniques that brought so much dividend back. And it was so easy. It's like, oh, I slapped myself on the forehead. I, got, I can't believe we hadn't been doing that kind of thing all along. It was so simple to do, and it had such a high uh, impact. So, but, but it is, hey, start figuring out what are the things that are really costing you money uh, or, 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 or time, you know, uh, or what's preventing you from reaching production the most and, and, and start hitting those uh, right, right off the bat. But it's important to tie that back again. I'm going to sound like a broken record. Tie it back to the framework. You know, even if these simple ones, you got to get people, take them back and say, hey, this is where this fits in this roadmap. That's why we're working on this one. And make sure people are, that you're bringing them along so that folks understand, understand that. Because there's going to be resistance. Because guess what happens when you start breaking down? Your overtime starts going down. You know, other things start going down. So some people are going, hey, how's that good for me? Well, in some cases, we redeployed those overtime hours on more proactive things versus reactive. So you're actually able to redeploy it. Some could be, hey, there is some cost, but the company is going to be in business for a while. That's, you know, and, and they also could see raises in their in their wages. So you have to manage those things. Um, I do think, you know, I'm a, a ex-wrestler, football player. Um, so I, I think you got to have the foundation in place. Any good player have to have the basic things in place. So I think you have to have a strong computerized maintenance management system, CMMS in place, um, that has good, strong preventive maintenance capability. Uh, you do have to pick a, a good predictive maintenance or, or condition monitoring software and tools uh, that, that are simple to start out with, but that you can expand and innovate a, a against them. But start simple and then innovate and reward people for that innovation. Uh, you, you got to, you have, the culture also has to be that, you know, this is the way, you know, I'm, I'm from Star Wars, the Mandalorian, you know, this is the way, you know, <laughs> it, it, you, people have to understand they have to be rewarded and it has to come, this does have to come top down, that this is the way we're going to work. And this is how we're going to get rewarded at, 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 at work. Um, and, and not all of those are all low hanging fruit. Trust me <laughs> that all those tools and stuff, those, are, are not all low hanging, but they're critical foundation that has to be in place. Uh, the ones I do say very low hanging fruit 
and, and me, people may say that they're not that low hanging, but just establishing operation controls on critical or high incident equipment. I, I can't believe how many times people didn't understand what their oil pressure was, you know, or what's the flow rate or, you know, what's the pump curve? Where, where's this pump sitting on its curve, performance curve? Uh, what, you know, what's the filter differential at? And no one knows. And you're like, oh my God, you're, you're flying blind. Now, now some modern equipment, it's all programmed in and it's, you know, built, built in and you can see it and alarm off of it. But people, even if you have it automated, you still have to have a commitment to understanding it. And if you don't, you're, you're flying blind. And you can find so many things when you start looking at those things that, hey, something's, something's not, not right, especially in lubricate, the world of lubrication. So many times I found, oh my God, you know, the, the flow rate is one quarter of what it should have been. And someone accidentally turned a knob, it, you know, it, it, so, so having that commitment to that day in, day out is important. Uh, I think establishing lube walkarounds, uh, PM routes, and that doesn't just mean the people, you know, the mechanics, uh, electricians. That also means the supervisors and managers got to walk around too. And you, you know, you've got to walk that facility. You got to understand what's going on. This is the time that you can get alignment with people out there, get buy-in. What you're doing is you got to get people out there. And in in if you're just running from meeting to meeting and you're not spending time out on the floor and building relationships and seeing how things are going, it, you, you know, you, you got to be, you, you know, people will react to that. They'll be responsive to it. And especially if you start rewarding people as you're you're doing it. Um, I think starting a simple uh, FMEA failure mode effect analysis on the critical, most critical equipment is, is it, I, I think is low hanging fruit. Sometimes people get overwhelmed by them, but if you keep them simple, and you just focus on the most critical where, you're, where you get the most problems, just start there and start designing around that uh, your framework, I think there, there's a lot of gold for not that much work. Uh, and then combine that with root cause analysis, meaning after something's failed, go look at the dead body, you know, go pull it out, talk to people, understand the processes involved, uh, the, the what, what was the timeline, who was involved. So you can really start understanding. You don't do that on everything, but but start small. And start, especially with the critical ones, that, that that's going to be there. I, I love walking to facilities that have a, a table outside their condition monitoring and they've got all the dead bodies. Sometimes it's a trophy case, which is great. You know, we want to show people. And you should, you show here, here's what we found. You got to show them that so that they believe in what, what you're telling them from vibration, thermography, oil analysis, whatever. But but also that that this they're taking the time to say, well, why did this fail? And, and not just the direct cause. But starting to dig down, well, how is that installed, or how is this being run, or you know, what, dip, how is the filtration on this working? Uh, th those kind of things. Uh, I, I think really, really low work effort, but you got to start somewhere, and you got to be committed to doing that day in day out. Which, which really kind of gets into setting standards, simple work processes, and how work's done. If you just leave it as institutional knowledge, you, if you have really good people you'll probably run pretty well, but people change and you're going to have lots of, de you're, you're, you're going to have lots of deviation of work performance. The more you can get the people that have those best practices and get those into standard processes to make sure people understand how our job's supposed to be done fit for purpose. I think you, you'll, you'll be successful on a longer period of time. Uh, the next one is one of the, the embarrassing ones. Uh, we, we put a, got an idea, Hey, we, Let's put just a 
it's, you know, we were going to put everything online with temperature on electric motors. And we said, man, why don't, you know, why don't we just do an infrared gun? We could tie it into our CSI 2120 back at the time. And uh, we got our lubricators to do it. We just put black, sprayed black paint. So we shot the same place each time and you had the right emissivity each time. Uh, and, and it was amazing that what we found just by shooting the temperature once a week and they, and it just logged it. We put some simple limits. I mean, we found cooling fans missing. We found pumps running off their performance curve. You found ventilation plugged up, you, you know, just all sorts of things. Uh, the orifice on our vacuum pump uh, got destroyed. And so it was pulling way too, you know, working with pump, vacuum pump working way too hard. But just so it almost cost us nothing, you know, because we were already walking around the equipment anyway. So, so, so easy to do. Um, I think using ultrasonics uh, for air leaks and steam traps, really good. On the lubrication side, using ultrasonics for like relubrication, I think is not necessarily low hanging fruit. Uh, it, it's good practice from a survey uh, to evaluate your regreasing re frequencies, but just for air leaks and steam, so much money to be had, just, you know, finding where those, those are. I think uh, track and lube consumption, just simple where you, you know, where you, using oil and you know why uh, is very, very important. And then start aligning and balancing your equipment uh, as well as finding the ones that have bad foundations. Uh, I, I think really, really low hanging fruit uh, to, to get going. Don't, don't you know, train 20 people to do it. Pick a couple people and focus. And, and then remember I said, this is the way on those critical equipment, you don't start it up until someone signed off that they've met those standards. And then if they can't in operations and or everyone makes a decision, you got the right sign off that people took that risk and then are committed to go back the next outage to, to correct that. Mm -hmm. You get to that kind of mindset. Now people understand how important the, that precision is. But don't start on everything. But start picking on those that critical equipment first. Yeah, so that's, anyway, that's, it's a long one. Long, no, long, that's long awesome. Stuff off my head, uh, you know. <laughs> There, I'm sure there are many others people I've experienced with, but I just those are some some ones I found, you know, low hanging. Yeah, the the infrared gun one I think is 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 awesome. Like as far as you know the the equipment checks go, just because, like you said, it, it's so simple and it's so quick to do, and um, you know, there is obviously a move to more like comprehensive infrared thermography where we're, you know, getting really complicated and really really finessing it, um, but. Uh, you know, even just the basics of taking a single temperature reading as you go around the plant. I mean, uh, and and like you said, if you can trend it over time, then you can you can pick up a an awful lot of uh, failures. Um, yeah. But well, again, one, one more, I just one more I got to talk about is uh, coupling and U joint universal joint inspections. I mean, it, it, they're not necessarily easy, you know, to do, but just doing. I mean, amazing the stuff you uncover. Not necessarily just with the coupling. But just with things like play, loose things, I, I just so much stuff, seals being missing on a coupling, a grease coupling, at, or, or even an elastomer where the guard's rubbing the elastomer, you know, just simple stuff that, you know, simple visual, a commitment to doing that, huge payoff. Yeah, definitely. Um, so as we sort of like wrap up here, um, maybe the, the question uh, that would be interesting to, to to know the answer to is have you seen any examples of businesses that have made that leap from you know some relatively not, not necessarily a low baseline but wherever they were 
and have made sort of that step up to world-class, um, you know, asset management. And uh, I guess, w- what did it take? You know, what did it take? Obviously, you've outlined some some ways, you know, and a lot of it's driven, like you said, by leadership. Um, and, and what follows from that is culture. And then what follows from that is behaviors. And what follows from that is sort of like the technical set of skills. But is there a is there a particular example that you can think of where that was sort of achieved in a, in a really good way? Yeah, a lot of people they hear, hey, I'm Exxon Mobil, Mobil. They, they they think, oh, Exxon Mobil. Exxon Mobil is, a, and to me, is one of the premier asset management companies out there. But they're very mature, and it's a critical industry. You, you know, but but one I would say where I really saw an opportunity to where we move from, you know, non world class. To, to a different state was when I worked in a paper mill. Uh, I worked in Kingsport, Tennessee. It, it was a Willamette mill. Now it's a, a Dom Tar. Uh, you know, in, in fact, because of economic, it, it did shut down just recently. Now it's starting back up. It's starting back up because they do have a world-class organization. They're great people. But when I was there, this is, this is a little few years ago, but, uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity to be part of a great team. And, uh, you know, it, I, I'm not, would you say, would I say we're world-class and absolute? Pro- probably not. But if I look at the amount of positive change and the massive amount and downtime reduction and costs we had and the culture that we really ba- built was amazing. I, I mean, it wasn't easy um, and it didn't happen overnight. But I remember showing up at this mill and the, the guy that brought me on, uh, he's now passed away, great guy, Roy Davidson. And, and he he brought me up there. You're in charge of the reliability program. And I told my wife, I said, I think I made a big mistake. I mean, first week out there, everything had failed. I mean, I was doing all nighters. I'm like, oh my God, what, what have I got myself into? But we, we started building that framework of what we're going to do and started doing that piece by piece, got the people in place. And and we went down from almost, they, they were going to sell that plant or shut it down to being the flagship of, of the company back then. And people started really looking at that. Um, and, and again, not just from the maintenance, but but from operations as as well. And there were still many opportunities to 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 do there. But uh, you know, just so world class, as someone could say now, and you weren't world class. But but uh, man, it was just great to see the, the the change in in culture and commitment, and go from really being on the ropes to being out of business to to really being a a, a good flagship. But it it did start with strong leadership and commitment from the top but also include listening to folks on the front lines and rewarding people for the right behaviors. And it, it did start with some very basic, but low hanging fruit. Some of the things that we talked up above, um, you know, uh, uh, putting in a vibration program, just regular thermography, oil analysis, it, you know, doing things more planned inspections. And we learned along the way and, and got more and more sophisticated but but it was it was that that to me was a a, a really a really good one. I, and I was just going to also add on this question that you just had is you know I do see lots people can learn a lot from different companies. There, there are lots of other industries, you know that have uh, you know very sophisticated where they've adopted the you know IOT the IOT you know uh, they've gone digital that wow amazing things that they're doing to the basics. People doing some basic things really really well. And I do encourage people to subscribe to to reliability magazines. I, I love you on uh, on your LinkedIn sharing some really good good materials. Um, 
I, I do encourage people to go to reliabilityweb.com uh, and go to the University of Tennessee. I, I know I'm a U.S. guy. I'm talking about a U.S. Uh, university, but Marcon, uh, great, great website. Go, you know, where uh, you can really learn what some some other folks are doing. But uh, I, I think you can continue to learn from that. But that that's what I saw as you know, kind of being a part and, and seeing it. Uh, I mean, being right in the middle of the battle and going through, oh my God, what have I got myself into to some frustrations, but then stepping back and, and you see even today, you know, as they're starting to plant back up, they're using some of the same things that we had in, in place, you know, from the process perspective and what, what the framework, et cetera. So really, really nice to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Sort of a great, great place to end it. And I think sort of it, it uh, speaks to one of our original questions, which was what the way that, you know, all the countries have started to sort of even their, themselves out uh, because of the availability of all these like digital resources, right? That that realistically yeah. now it, it doesn't really matter where you are in the world. You've got access to the same knowledge base and the same information that uh, uh, that everyone does. Um, yeah. So, you know, great opportunity um, also means there's no excuse, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, if you um, want to stay in business, hey, if you want to stay in business, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Hey, Tom, um, you know, really, really appreciate the discussion, your insight um, coming from, you know, obviously a wealth of experience, um, you know, in, in multiple industries as well, being able to see kind of across the board, multiple industries, many countries, um, uh, you know, m- many, let's say, uh, cl- you know, different levels of um, of asset management as well. So, um, you know, it was really good to get your take on, especially some of those, um, you know, you know, what are the sort of key, uh, you know, enablers, I guess, of, of a world-class asset management program, but also, you know, what are some of the practical steps that we can, we can take to improve our own program? So really appreciate your time. And um, I'll definitely have to get you back on. I, th- I know you sort of hinted that there's probably another podcast in you about, about yeah. safety. So um, we'll, we'll definitely have to get you back. No, awesome. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great. I love, love discussing it. I, I hope it helps out.